Welcome to Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. In these episodes, we will be highlighting people who are impacted by histories and systemic processes of neglect and disinvestment, but do not often have a seat at the table and may not feel seen. This is a space for people radically reimagining a path forward, but not necessarily a space for those who are unpersuaded by the need for a better world where Black futures matter. We are focused on sharing perspectives that are often unshared or unheard because they challenge what we think we know. In this program, guests are the experts of their own reality. I'm honored, excited, and elated um, to be in space today with Genesia Williams, the owner of Doing Things. Genesia Doing Things. Okay, I messed that up then. Genesia Doing Things. Go ahead, correct me. It is a design and strategy firm focused on solutions for nonprofits, small businesses, artists, individuals really trying to live and be in their truth. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm super excited because I also have the honor of being in space with you um, in the Black Community Trust Fund Project. And for folks that are unaware, the Black Community Trust Fund Project came about after Nexus Community Partners sought to be a steward organization for what is now called the Open Road Fund to provide a return on the investment Black folks have long made to the United States and to challenge the system of rules that robs Black people and communities of the wealth they create, from slavery and Jim Crow to redlining and police brutality. Nexus will provide this return on investment through the redistribution of the $50 million open road fund directly to Black folks who identify as descendants of formerly enslaved African people, including individuals who experience or are descendants of Black families experience redlining, Jim Crow, etc. This will happen over eight years, with roughly 100 families receiving the award each year. And the primary goal of the Open Road Fund is to enable Black individuals, families, and communities across North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota to build long-lasting intergenerational wealth. Genesee Williams is a member um, of the council that has been selected to design the fund, establishes goals, objectives, um, and really support ensuring that how the fund is given out um, is representative of what Black folk need um, and want. And I think the first question I would love to ask you, why did you apply to be a part of this amazing table? Um, and how is this directly impacting you as an entrepreneur? Um, I'm sure it was a calculated and intentional choice. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, first, thank you for having me here. I'm super glad to be in this conversation. Um, to answer the question as directly as I can, I think um, I had had this experience um, about a year before applying for this opportunity with the Black Community Trust Fund. And I, a colleague called me and was like, hey, I would like for you to be on this 
um, committee and not just be on it, but will you co-chair it? And I was like, sure, tell me more. (laughs) And um, turns out it was the Women's Foundation Transformation Committee. And my co-chair was Nevada Little Wolf, who I had actually known Nevada previously from different work. So it was really exciting. Um, But like, she's like Nevada Little Wolf. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, oh, Genesea, come co-chair. And I'm like... People don't even like <laughs> like know who I am, you know. So like, why me? But like, it was very much this. Uh, they were. I had been in space and in community with Women's Foundation with my pre- with the job that I had um, full time for many years, and um, they had seen me around, and it was like, no, we know we want your voice in this space, and so I had the chance to 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 do this to co chair this committee. And I went in there, this is a long way around this point, but it will answer the question. I went in there, <laughs> I went in there, like, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be Miss Black America, I'm gonna give y'all the the history and the background and the nuance of black people's experiences based on what I know, mm-hmm. so that we can make sure that we are um heard and represented with some nuance in this conversation about how you all are going to strategically distribute and fundraise all this money. Um, because this committee was for them to redo their strategic plan. They knew they needed to add okay. a specifically anti-racist lens and some other adjustments that they needed to make specifically even around like changing from um, like changing to like a reproductive justice stance, like mm-hmm. things like that. There were things that they knew that they wanted to do in the wake of, um, you know, everything that happened with George Floyd and then with the pandemic and et cetera, et cetera. And so they were like, yeah, come co-chair this. So I did that, and I thought I was going to be Miss Black America. I thought I was going to spring all the history. (laughs) Um, But then my class things were coming out, Mm. like my things about money, and which makes sense. But I wasn't expecting that. Um, But it's a a logical thing, right? Because we're talking about a, a foundation that is raising and distributing millions of dollars and has done so for many years. And so I ended up being the give them money girl. So, okay, <laughs> like <laughs> they they would ask the question, you know, reasonable questions, reasonable. What can we do to support women and girls and gender expansive people? And I'm like, eh, give them money, because all the ones that I know, <laughs> and including myself, uh, we need cash. We need direct support. You know, I think of, I have a friend who is paying for lupus. Treatment uh, okay. out of pocket. Wow. She needs cash. <laughs> she doesn't need a program. She needs money, right? Mm-hmm. We need a we need systemic change, obviously, with our healthcare system. But like in the interim, like she needs cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the women and girls that I know, and mm-hmm. certainly gender expansive people, they need direct support. So this is how we get to the the answer to the question. <laughs> When So having had this experience, something a little bit unexpected and a little bit, maybe not unprecedented, but unexpected in my life and gone, going through that experience and really coming into my own voice around my stance with understanding class, both on a systemic level and on a personal level, mm-hmm. when I saw the trust fund and they were talking about like the giving to black people specifically, 
because like anti-blackness is very specific. Mm -hmm. And so they were very specific about supporting black people. And the idea around direct support, I was like, oh, I have to apply. Like I have to try for this. And I had just had this other experience. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, and I'm a good facilitator. Like, I'm I'm good at facilitating. I'm good at thinking through, you know, these kinds of concepts and then, like, putting them together and, like, da-da-da. So I could add that. And we didn't, we didn't need to do all of that as a committee, which is lovely because we have wonderful facilitators. Okay. Say it again. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. People that didn't hear it in the back. The, the research and action <laughs> team. Um, but, um, so that's lovely. But I was like, I'm coming into this like this like surety of my own like sort of voice and process and like I need to I should just apply. Why not? I want I want black people to have money. Okay. You know? It's fifty right. million dollars. They said fifty million dollars. I was like, mm, let me sign up to okay. help. Okay, girl. So <laughs> So That's why I did it. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. That I appreciate you sharing that context. This is Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. Disruptive Narratives is a co-production of Camo J and Amperth, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I think it's really important for us just to name this up front. Mm. We're saying Black wealth, but what do we mean? Right? Yeah. Um, so the council's actually created a definition. Mm-hmm. Um, I will share it and I want you to share with folks what helped create this. What were you all trying to keep in mind mm-hmm. um, and maybe what changed or shifted mm-hmm. in the definition over time. Mm-hmm. So the definition is black wealth is about liberation and freedom from dependency in a culture that has reproduced anti-blackness and robbed black people of their creativity. Attaining Black wealth is about restoring what has been stolen, rebuilding our communities, and reclaiming our right to self-determination. By reclaiming our ancestral birthright, we seek restoration as we heal from the loss and denial of ancestral knowledge, familial connections, and our most sacred traditions rooted in family, love, and community. Ancestral restoration enables us to take control of our minds, bodies, and soul. By reclaiming our sovereign right to take control of our lives and what we produce, build, or invent, we seek the freedom to reclaim the land, build new institutions, resource those institutions, and gain new tools and knowledge that can enrich the next generation and creatively decide what quality of life we deserve and what services we need. Black wealth is about liberation, restoration, freedom, and creativity. Um, To reclaim our body, mind, and soul, to gain our right to self-determination through ownership of what we produce, builds what we invent through our creativity and excellence. Um, what comes up to you as important about this definition, both in naming it mm. um, and perhaps what our public illusion of what it is? Mm-hmm. So I think shared meaning is a really um, important way of establishing like an equitable process we may not always agree on what we're talking about. In this case, we this definition is a product of much consensus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we may not we may not always be coming from the same place. We may not always be agreeing, um, at, at least initially. Mm-hmm. And so, shared meaning, knowing 
like when when we say in this context xyz we mean this mm-hmm. um so i think what this definition seeks to do and i think does do is to state with intention what this group what nexus what we are hoping to affirm and support mm-hmm. in this redistribution of of funds. Not to be clear, fifty million is a drop in the bucket of what we are owed, but it has the power to be so meaningful um, in proportion to the lives of the people who will get the get the awards when that time comes. And so um, having a statement of intention and something to point back to, a point of reference when, as this continues, you know, it's new, it's shiny, it's interesting now. Mm -hmm. And I think it will continue to be shiny and interesting later. But it's important to be able to reference what our intent was in doing, in starting the work Mm -hmm. as the work changes. Mm-hmm. Because we're smart enough to know and to, and to understand, which is part of what the benefit of working so closely with with you and your team at Research and Action, we've already built in the idea that says that we know this is going to change. We know that there are perspectives that both deserve to be heard and need to be um, tracked so that we can continue to affirm these things um, and or make changes as needed. And in particular, I get a lot out of um, the following things that are named in the definition, and that is creativity. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm a big, like, <clears throat> cultural gatekeeper kind of person of Black okay. people's things. Like, I am not a person that will gatekeep blackness itself, right? Like, because I think that we have a wide range of experiences and, like, some of the ways that we're having the conversation, I'm not sure, are helpful. Um, I think blackness as a constructed identity has always been more about, like, who gets added in versus who gets kept out. Mm -hmm. And we've survived that way together. Um, Certainly, there's a bunch of things we can work on in, in, in community, but... You know, so I'm not going to gatekeep blackness itself, but I'm real picky about black culture. Mm. Like, I want people to give black Americans in particular, black folks in the U.S., black folks in this part of the diaspora, in the Caribbean, etc. I want people to give us our things because we created all the cultural exports. American cool is black people. Mm. Things mm. like that, right? So I'm super protective over that, right? Mm-hmm. So when we start with, acknowledging how we've been robbed of that creativity, mm. how the the product of that work, of that intellectual labor, of that creative labor, not just also the labor of our bodies or our reproductive labor. I think that's an important thing to name because those are the things, all of the labor that has been stolen from us, those of us who um, are descended from those in the, you know, who went through the transatlantic slave trade, et cetera, and those who have lived in and survived Jim Crow, redlining, et cetera. And then, of course, by extension, all Black people who have survived and lived under the legacy of colonialism. Um, 
and its effects. Right? Like, <laughs> uh, you know, people weren't stealing us because we were cute. They were stealing <laughs> us because we were skilled. That part. Right. And that part. Yeah. But the other things that stand out to me are self determination, mm-hmm. um, the agency and sovereignty, the mm. ideas around that, because we know systems of injustice are both about mm, profit mm-hmm. and, and hoarding of resources and also restrict people's ability to decide what their life looks like. Mm-hmm. And we know that intimately, and we know that in our intersections as well, really intimately. And so that the the hope for some amount of restoration in that mm-hmm. really stands out for me. And then reclamation of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um especially in a place like Minnesota where there's a lot of um, ph- philanthropic presence. Um, there's a lot of the attitude that we don't know what is best for us, mm. but we have knowledge. We come from cultures that have knowledge that is centuries old, millennia old, that's older than any Western society. So the things that live in our body and in ourselves they're coming from places that are ancient. Mm-hmm. So we actually do know what we need. And having a moment to think, having a moment to collect ourselves, having a moment to collaborate, having a moment to think uh, laterally, we have all the solutions that we need. Um, and so I appreciate the reclamation, the aspect um and I appreciate the idea that we're building for a future. Because, like, black people are in the future. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that, like, all the space movies leave us out. But, like, we exist in the future. My favorite Afrofuturism movie is Belly. Okay. Same you ready? Okay. Please. <laughs> I'm going. Okay. <laughs> so, Belly, right? <laughs> Belly is a movie that is about the turn of the century. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. It came out in like 98, mm-hmm. but it's about 1999. Mm-hmm. So it's about these men existing a year ahead of where we are and in a place of change and disruption in their life. Mm-hmm. And they are examining the world that they're in, the world that they came from. And they leave us at the point of like whatever that world is going to be after. So I like when we talk about the future. I like when we have something that is future facing because we get left out of that conversation, but we exist in the future. We existed in the past. We exist right now. So we absolutely exist in the future. That's so true. This is Disruptive Narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lewis. Disruptive Narratives is a co-production of Camo J and Amperth diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Something that you made a reference to, there's an intersection that I want to talk about. Mm. Um, When we think about the redistribution of these funds Mm. and who it's for, Mm -hmm. I would love for us to chat a little bit about the intersection of who is for the politics of class, Mm -hmm. Um, 
and your own pathway of getting out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. Because if we're going to be honest, this is a personal pursuit as it is political. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And even as you started earlier sharing your former experience in the co-chair space with the Women's Foundation of Mm -hmm. Minnesota, um, you were sharing your wisdom when you said, give them money. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, perhaps that was novel to others. But that comes from experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would love for you to share with us, what did it take you to get to opening Genesee doing things? Mm-hmm. And do we have to go as far back as your family and your migration here to this place and space and what you learned as a young person? Mm-hmm. Um, to your experience in the workforce and what it taught you about who you wanted to be or who you didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you decide that entering. It's all of that, though. Like, And thank you for using the word migration, especially coming here. I want to honor something that has been really meaningful to me. I wasn't understanding so I'm from Chicago, <laughs> okay. and I and I'm gonna say it every every chance I get. Um, so I've done it now. But um, my family came here when I was a, a girl. I usually don't say how long I've been here because people will say, "Oh my God, you're a Minnesotan," and I'm like, mm, "Please don't." <laughs> um, there's something that I remember Ilhan Omar saying about her children. She was like, "They may." And I'm not sure if they had been to Somalia yet at that point in their their lives. But she said they, ha- I don't think they had been, right? Mm-hmm. She said they haven't been. And even if they never go, if you ask them who they are, they will tell you that they're Somali. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, mm-hmm. It's very simple. And so for me, Chicago is like that. Um, so that's a, that's a note about me. <laughs> but um, the... Related to that, something I want to honor in this moment is it took hearing from other Black people who were migrating from different countries, describing their experience with like entering into a different place and different cultural things, different sets of culture, and navigating that for me to be able to contextualize what my experience had been. Mm. And so I want to honor that as I go into answering the question or, you know, coming to the, coming to the point of the story. Um, how, hmm. I entered, I've been, I was in the U S workforce when I was 13 years old. Like that's, Mm. that was when I entered the U S workforce. Um, I have parents who love me and, and, and my sibling, I have other siblings, but our household unit at that time was just the four of us. And, um, my parents love us. My parents have always tried to show up differently, um, than maybe even some of the experiences they had, like emotionally, um, and as parents. But my parents never had a lot of money because my parents came of age in the Reagan era. Okay. My mother grew up affluent. My mom grew up like, you know, definitely on the bougie line. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, my mother spent her formative years, like her early childhood years, mm-hmm. in Europe. My grandfather was stationed in Munich or near Munich. She So she started kindergarten in Germany. And she had an entirely different life and experiences. And they came back to the States and back to Chicago when she was about 10. So she just had these different experiences. My dad, his family, solidly like working class to middle class. Um, My grandmother, who has done many things um but at one point uh she and her first husband they owned a small chain of record stores in Chicago and they did well so th- they my parents had different experiences than I did my parents came of age in the Reagan era and so they never had enough money for anything period and that's just kind of the short and long of it And so my mother made the decision to bring us to Minnesota because for the same reason that her great-grandmother, Miss Annie Carter, came up from Mississippi, Mm -hmm. right? It it just is. You go where you think the opportunities will be. And I will say that, that in many ways, that was a promise made good, but in many ways, there's a lot rotten here. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's that. But even with all that opportunity, I still had to enter the workforce at 13. Mm-hmm. And my parents set me down. And I don't think they wanted to do this. This is literally just our situation. And they were like, hey, I need you to cover. We need you to cover. We're sorry to do this. But we need you to cover your personal expenses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at 13, you're in this puberty. Like, you know, right. you have things that you need. Um, but from that point on, like, I bought school clothes. I bought this. I bought that. Mm-hmm. And they did not want to do that. I want to make that extremely clear. But it was just our situation. So there's many, many things there. Um, But when I was in my early 20s, so like around 2009, Mm -hmm. this graphic design stuff that I had been doing, um, I was still doing it. And people were paying me a little bit for it. And it was starting to get organized. And I was like, oh, shoot, I guess I should, like, start a business. I didn't know how to do that. I never got the LLC, though, so, (laughs) you know. But I did. I mean, obviously, I registered with the state and everything, so I do have, like, a a registered business. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, so I was like, dang, I think I actually have to, like, organize this and, like, you know, get an EIN, like, do some little stuff. like. And so I did. And I always had a job. I never thought – I never thought I would be here – having the the full-time work, you know, or the independence of doing this work full-time. I thought I would just have a job and do it on the side. Um, and that's how, that's how I got here. And then the pandemic gave me some space to think. Because even though, like, I was still getting blue-collar wages, I had a little white-collar job, you know. Mm-hmm. So when the white folks... At Augsburg, <laughs> uh, where I worked um, for a nonprofit that was in there, we're like, okay, everyone, we're going to go home. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to go home. Mm-hmm. And I started working from working from home, and it gave me a freedom. It gave me a space to think. It gave me the resource of my time. Mm-hmm. And that helped me. 
and it opened up a space that I never thought, I never expected to be open. To hear the second part of our conversation, visit camojfm.com. Disruptive Narratives is a production of Camo J Radio and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Made with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Hosted by Dr. Brittany Lewis, produced by Miranda Wilson, edited by Abdi Mohammed, music by Jerome Rankin. <laughs>